Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Uh, In a recent series of podcasts, we've been talking about substance use or substance-related disorders, uh, use disorders, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Uh, We've reviewed symptomatology, which just means uh, those symptoms that accompany a diagnosis, Uh, And in particular, we've been discussing opioid use disorder. Uh, We also uh, examined, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, have examined uh, treatment, uh, treatment options uh, based on levels of care, which are also based on dimensions of the addiction or addictive behavior or the abuse or misuse of the substance. We mentioned also as well uh, on our last podcast, for all of you who may have not caught it or may have forgotten it, uh, that outside or beyond uh, opioids as the number one in a recent study, uh, having found uh, opioids to be the number one addicted and addictive substance in the United States, there was behind that in the number two position, uh, cocaine. And with cocaine, uh, we have some of the same considerations as far as uh, diagnosis would go and treatment uh, would go. Uh, But for the sake of at least acknowledging, one, acknowledging uh, stimulant use disorders, uh, the prominence, the prevalence, Uh, of, again, late in the United States in terms of overall substance misuse, uh, which would include abuse and dependence, Uh, but also, additionally, additionally to that, or additional to that, uh, take a look at the specific criterion uh, so that you might see the similarities when it comes to, once more, a pattern of abuse and dependence as Uh, with symptomatology as you would make the diagnosis. Uh, And this is, as we mentioned or discussed in our last podcast as well, this would be more universal and generalized across all the substances uh, that would be considered to be or would be seen as uh, addictive, would make it into inclusion into the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic Manual, of mental disorders, which then again would imply a sickness. It's a disease model, an illness. Uh, And uh, for the sake of, again, uh, stimulants, uh, as we did with opiates, uh, I think it's worthwhile to go ahead and specifically cover as much universal or general symptoms, but make them have uh, specific application provide specific application to the use of a stimulant. Now, now in, again, very broad terms, stimulant-related disorders, uh, broad meaning, includes a number of different substances. Uh, I have chosen it because it hit the number two spot on, again, this recent study of addictive and addicted uh, chemicals, substances, Uh, most addictive and with the greatest amount of addiction in the United States. Uh, But 
Stimulant-related disorders, as much as cocaine falls into that general category, can include any sort of amphetamine-type substance uh, or anything that otherwise would be considered to be a stimulant when taken in the body or as the body would react to it being taken, it would do so in that manner of other stimulants, such as cocaine. So what that basically means is there are certain effects that go along with that that would then fall in, once again, to this general category of stimulant-related disorders. So, as much as it's been several podcasts ago, we went over opioid use disorder in that same sort of a way, a general category, uh, with, again, a, a, uh, an established pattern of use or symptomatology that would suggest a pattern of misuse, we're going to do the same thing for stimulants. So in order to be diagnosable as a stimulant use disorder, there must be a pattern of amphetamine-type substance, cocaine, or other stimulant use that leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. And we're going to see that in at least two of the following uh, symptoms that I'm going to uh, go over or read, uh, which actually I'm going to cover 11. So you just have to have two of the following 11 to be diagnosed as a stimulus use disorder, stimulant use disorder. But it must occur within a 12-month period. Uh, which in and of itself is somewhat of an extended period of time. Uh, so it's, if it's within that 12-month period, uh, then again, two of the following 11, what we're going to go over or cover here in a moment, you would consider it to be stimulant use disorder, whatever the substance, amphetamine-type substance, cocaine, or other stimulant. One, the first symptom would be the stimulant is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. Again, the same as we mentioned or discussed when we looked at opiates. There's no difference. Two, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control, in this case, the stimulant use, but once again, the only thing that changes between opiates and stimulants, according to the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, is that it is a stimulant rather than an opiate, as is then the categories of stimulant different than the category of opiates or opioid. Number three, symptom three, you only have to, once again, have two of the 11 that we're covering presently, third of which would be a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the stimulant, use the stimulant, or recover from its effects. Again, the same as we said with opiates. 
And, and by now, you should be uh, able to uh, see, beginning to see, the beauty of the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual when it comes to substance use disorder, and probably one of the most beautiful things, if I again could use that adjective to describe science, uh, scientific efforts, pursuits, um, would be parsimony. The notion of simplicity. Certainly, stimulants affect the body in a different way than opiates. But when it comes to looking at a stimulant use disorder or a diagnosis of stimulant use disorder, the way that the substance affects the body is parsimonious. It's simplified. It's universal. Again, you're going to see some differences, obviously, in the substance, the symptoms of the effects of the particular substance, because one's, again, in a category of stimulant, and the other is in a category of opioid. And once more, we looked at that uh, in some depth last podcast, uh, discussing how Basically, the system is binary, the operational system, the bodily operational system, the hedonic system, the homeostatic response, all the neurotransmitters that go into sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, how those need to be balanced, etc., etc., etc. But when you look at substance-related or substimulant, particularly in this discussion today, stimulant use disorder, substance-related or addictive and addictive disorders, what we're going to see is it's the same across all the categories because the human dimension, and once more, once again, because the APA, American Psychiatric Association, is so sound in its uh, empirical pursuit, its uh, scientific methodology, its researching uh, these substances, that it is captured very simply, possibly not the addictive personality, because as again with last podcast, we said there was no such thing as an addictive personality disorder, but the pattern is universal. Now, once again, you could question whether or not that means that there is an addictive personality or that we're all addicted. And I am probably, or at least inclined to addiction at some level. I'm, I'm led to believe, my uh, own personal opinion would be, that it is probably more the second than the first, the latter rather than the first, in that to be human is to buy sort of instrumentally so implication to be potentially an addict. Why? Because the way the basic, again, operational system works, the homeostatic response works, the hedonic system, the pleasure-pain system works, it does a miraculous job balancing all of that out. Once your brain figures out through the 
I guess in this case, it would be the reaction, the response that has precipitated a particular release of neurotransmitters, whether internally or externally generated, the stimulants, stimulus, not stimulants, but the stimulus, the cause for a particular response. The way the human brain works, psychologically speaking, it either rewards or discourages. And when I get into the psychology of thought, willpower in particular and choice, it is very difficult to not do something or very difficult to resist being conditioned to do something, stimulus, response, consequences. Consequence would be the, again, reaction physiologically, but it translates with pain and pleasure to either reward or punishment. Pain would be punishment, reward would be pleasure. But the human brain is designed to analytically, I complimented the American Psychiatric Association, empiricism, the empirical model, as much as, again, it is sound in terms of validity, the, the research, the, the way that one goes about measuring, and then with that, the reliability of the tools or instruments used, the process, all of that is innately human. <laughs> it is refined when we talk about science and empiricism to the extent or degree that we're looking for these benchmarks of highest quality standard of validity and reliability, but the human brain operates the same way. The paradigm may not be as refined. There, the, the methodology may not be uh, as established. And there is quite a bit of refinement that can take place. You go to school and learn. And the more you learn, the more you appreciate learning. And you appreciate how to flesh out those things that are valid, to accept premises, hypotheses that are valid, and reject those that are not valid, uh, and you know how to go about testing that to make sure you've got it right. That's learning in general. Science is just taking it to an art form. Research methodology has been elevated to an art form. But it's in us all to do that. But when you begin to look at then the inclusion of a substance, whether it's intentioned as in, oh, you're in great pain. What can we give you that will alleviate the pain? Or, randomly so, oh, look, if I use this, then I feel this particular way. If I do this, then I feel this particular way. If it's good, then we're saying it's going to be rewarding, and we're going to learn, be conditioned to do it again, innately, naturally, with or without conscious awareness. If it feels really good, that means whether you think about it consciously or not, 
or would want to think about it consciously or not, it is going to always fall into, go to that place psychologically, physiologically, the hedonic system, the homeostatic response. It's going to go to that place of, at some level, evaluation, consideration. Just because it's not conscious, conscience, conscious, does not mean it doesn't happen. But when it does happen, as we're all, again, potentially addictive creatures, that's probably the basis of our addictive nature. For there's a lot of things in life that either we do intentionally or just stumble upon that make us feel good. And if we take them to extremes, we can very much so disrupt the homeostatic hedonic response. And with that, not even be aware of the degree of the conditioning, the learning, until someone would stop us and say, wait a minute, (laughs) you look like an addict. And basically, that's what we do in psychotherapy. We help individuals understand the dynamics of how this has become a conditioned response, elevating it to a conscious level for consideration, bringing awareness, also known as insight, basing it upon research, evaluation, scientific study, But we are actually tapping into empiricism that all of us possess, at least a measure of, and hopefully for the individual who is the addict, refining it, elevating it, if in no other way, but when it comes to that particular problem, whatever it is that they're addicted to, as it represents a problem, impairment, Read that a moment ago, clinically significant impairment or distress, so they can unlearn it. Another term we use is counter condition it, gain management over it, choose problem solve, choose alternatives to the particulars of the addiction. But if you begin with this notion that we're all prone to addiction, anything could potentially represent a behavior, an action, and for the sake of, again, the current series of podcasts, a substance that we're going to become addicted to. It is in the human nature to become addicted because it is human nature for the body to operate on a premise that, once again, naturally inclines individuals, if unrestrained, without some degree of moderation or temperance in mind, to become addicted to it. 
Now, does that necessarily mean that you're going to become addicted to everything? That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, though, of everything out there, you are likely to risk addiction to something, high prevalence, high probability, unless you practice some degree of moderation. Without self-temperance, another phrase, word, phraseology, phrase that we could use to describe self-temperance would be self-discipline. Without some use of empiricism on a regular basis in your life, you're going to increase the likelihood of one day stumbling upon this one thing that is going to be your addiction. And if you don't know either how in a preventative sort of way, understanding how the body does operate, the need for self-restraint self-discipline, some degree of management in a proactive manner so as to avoid too much of anything that makes you feel that good, then your likelihood of, again, falling into that trap or that snare is going to significantly increase. Keep that in mind. For what that means is that we're all potentially addicts just waiting for the right set of circumstances to bring us to a point of addiction, lest we have some sort of paradigm in mind, a way of analyzing, evaluating, looking at life that allows us to catch those things before they happen. Nonetheless, once they happen, once you begin to go into this progressive pattern of addiction, we've discussed it quite extensively when it comes to opiates. I'm saying basically in today's podcast, regardless of the category of substance, it looks the same for all illicit and probably even legal, some legal substances. But unless you have that on your radar and you establish a paradigm, a worldview, a way of living life that includes then healthiest, healthier, healthiest alternatives, and even so with all of that, you still might, you're going to risk falling into the trap. So when it comes to substance use disorders, the basic profile is going to look the same. When you start to mess with the hedonic system, the, again, thermostat, as we called it in last podcast, homeostatic response, you're probably already moving along that progressive continuum from simply use, also known as 
abuse, if it is physiologically dependent, tolerance, physiological tolerance is part of that, then on a physiological level, you're becoming addicted physically with every use of the substance. And should it even be somewhat delayed, which I'm not entirely sure, there isn't always going to be a physiological tolerance. It's just not everything you do that could be addictive or a substance you use that could be addictive is going to have a degree of withdrawal as another substance. Those that create greatest degree of withdrawal, the body tolerates better or best, we're going to recognize more in terms of that physiological dependence. But I'm not sure you could also, with that, ever avoid some degree of psychological dependence. I think I need it. I have learned, I have been conditioned, stimulus, response, consequences, to recognize if I do this thing, take this substance, I'm going to get this effect. I'm feeling a little down today, so I probably could use, maybe will use something to make me feel a bit up. But in the process of doing that, whatever was causing me to feel down may or may not correct. And the more I use that which makes me feel up, runs the risk of further disequilibrium, for a lack of a better word, in terms of my homeostatic response. As they say, have said, you don't, want to do, you don't want to do that. Once that gets messed up, ask any addict, it's really difficult to calibrate that system. You can't do it out of your head. We can't measure it in such finite terms, specific terms even, in physiology, physiological reference, more so have a clarity of not only thought, but an awareness of reality psychologically to then even should we have the willpower to implement such minute, such specific, such particular adjustments. We don't do that well. Addicts learn that once they begin to recognize an addiction, as with withdrawal, as with balancing out even so the effect of the substance as originally that started it all out. They're going to take another substance, but they're not going to do that well and before they know it, they're going to be addicted to not only one substance, but two substances. And then you could add even more because it's all chained together. Add to that, once again, 
the psychosocial dimensions, the psychological dimensions to that of the biological and physiological, and you can't keep track of it all. This is the best reason for not doing that, even risking something like that. If you know in advance, it is powerful enough and some of these substances, opiates, and now with stimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, which we will get into here in a moment, don't mess with them because the first time you do it, they're powerful enough to begin either physically or psychologically taking you down that course from misuse, use to misuse, abuse to dependence in rapid fashion and manner. We may be talking two or three occurrences. You could begin to be so enmeshed in that, engaged in that progression, you can't get out of it. And we should have had once more, as with, again, previous discussion, we don't want to admit it. Denial is, is the worst enemy of the addict. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not me. It's someone else. I can manage this. I don't have a problem. Bad luck. One-time occurrence, it won't happen again. Some of that may be well-intentioned and quite honest in terms of intention. But the denial part is, obviously, if it's happened more than once, twice, three occurrences, you're in denial. You're already into denial. Getting back to the symptomatology. Two of these 11, we've covered three. Number four, there is a craving. Otherwise, a strong desire or urge to use the stimulant. Again, all to do with this physiology we've been discussing, this tolerance and withdrawal that we've been discussing. We want it. And as much as, again, that's physiological, the psychological can also have a dimension of craving. You can think you want it so badly that even if you don't get it, just thinking you've got it makes you feel better. Those are placebos. <laughs> it's researched. It's established empirically so evidence-based that many, if not all of us, if we want it bad enough, even if it isn't it, but we think we got it, are prone to the placebo effect, presuming the person who is giving it to us has enough credibility to convince us as well, convince us that it is so. The fifth criterion Symptom, evidence of, 
stimulant use disorder. Recurrent stimulus use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Once again, universal to all the different categories. You'll see it in opiate use disorder. We've seen it in opioid use disorder. We see it now in stimulant use disorder. We would see that same criterion in any substance use disorder. Number six, continued stimulus or stimulant use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of the stimulant. And again, that just dovetails with number five, recurrent stimulant use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. This is the clinically significant impairment. This is, hopefully so, the distress which even with your homeostatic response, screwed up, messed up, disequilibrium through the use of an illicit substance, you still would have enough of a reaction physically and psychologically that in psychological regards would be prominent enough to be able to see it, admit to it, if the denial that is so common that goes along with not only misuse, abuse, but dependence on an illicit substance could be lessened or itself disengaged or eliminated. Hopefully, the distress and clinically significant impairment is powerful enough to get your attention. And if that isn't, hopefully there's someone around you who's brave enough, courageous enough, objective enough, considerate enough, enough of a friend to come to you, has enough concern for you to come to you and say, you have a problem. With that, number seven, criteria seven, criterion seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of stimulant use. You don't function as well. You might be functional. You might be able to do the minimum necessary to stay alive, maintain minimal social relationships, occupational functioning. But overall, you can not only see the decline in these major categories, all the primary ones, socially so, psychosocially so, but it's inverse as your substance use Disorder turns into substance abuse, 
as within that substance use disorder then turns into some sort of a dependency upon the substance in that category or that covering or that uh, title uh, over that title of substance use disorder. The inverse is the more, the further along as it progresses, the functioning declines. Now, it could be a positive correlation in this sense. The greater you use of substance, illicit substance, substances that are illicit, the greater your social impairment. But either way that you look at that, they're correlated, undeniably so. With that, criterion eight, recurrent stimulus use, stimulant use in situations in which it's physically hazardous, which then begins to capture this notion of it could harm you. But not only you, it could harm someone else. Number nine, stimulant use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by the stimulant. If any of these criterion speak then directly to denial, it would have to be, I would think, number nine. You continue to choose to use the illicit substance despite knowing of a problem that doesn't go away physically or psychologically, and also some degree of an awareness that that problem was likely to have been caused or exacerbated by the stimulant. Denial? No. But to be in denial presupposes as we've mentioned before, you have to have some awareness. So you really aren't in denial and explains why I choose to say you're lying to yourself <laughs> because yourself is screaming you have a problem and that the illicit substance is, if not the problem, becoming as prominent as the original initial problem itself in terms of creating more problem, more trouble, more difficulty. Psychological. Denial is psychological. Number 10, tolerance. I've mentioned it already in today's podcast. Tolerance is defined by either a need for increased amounts, noticeable amounts of the stimulant to get or achieve intoxication or the desired effect. You need more of it to get the same effect as what initially in the beginning took less of it, the substance, illicit substance. Or 
a diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of the stimulant, which means you may not increase so that you get the desired effect, the illicit substance, the amount taken. But if you don't, you're going to notice it. You're going to know it. And we call that withdrawal. So when it comes to withdrawal, which is a criterion in and of itself, it's going to be manifested by either characteristic withdrawal syndrome for the stimulant, which we've mentioned before is most typically just the opposite of the stimulant effect, but to the same degree in proportion of the amount taken, you will suffer those opposite sort of physiological reactions, psychological reactions. If it is a stimulant, then it's going to become a central nervous system depressant. It's going to take you down rather than with the stimulant who brings you up. And not only is it going to take you down in a gradual sort of manner, it's going to be abrupt and profound. The stimulant is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. So you measure that either withdrawal by the actual symptoms of withdrawal or the syndrome, or as with tolerance, if you don't take additional amounts of the illicit substance, you are going to feel it. And once again, it's hard to separate tolerance from withdrawal other than to say, if you take the substance and you are tolerant of it, you're going to experience withdrawal. If you take the substance, and that would be in increasing amounts, or at some point when you stop taking the substance, you're going to feel the withdrawal, which will let you know that you're tolerant and will immediately begin to see the withdrawal syndrome unless you would take more increased amounts of the illicit substance to prevent that. Now, there is a qualifier to the tolerance and withdrawal. It says, it, the American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic Statistical Manual, allows for, if under medical supervision, you experience tolerance or withdrawal, it is not criterion for a substance use or misuse or abuse disorder. Why? Because your doctor told you to do it. Because that was the RX or the recommendation. That would presume the medical doctor, that's the type of doctor, the medical doctor, the physician, would then be using the substance even as it might represent tolerance 
potential for tolerance or tolerance, potential for withdrawal or withdrawal, but would see the necessity of using the substance to be a lesser risk or worse for the patient than would be the risk associated with using it. And truthfully so, if conditions are not terminal, even should you go off the substance at some point while you're taking that particular substance that's controlled or has with being controlled substance means has the potential for tolerance and withdrawal, you can always treat it as we've been discussing medicinally as with opioids it was medication assist in treatment, helping the, the patient go back to a level of functioning that does not include the use of the substance, hopefully a higher level of functioning or a resumption of the highest level of functioning. Or if it is a chronic condition, you may, the physician may make the determination, regardless of the tolerance of withdrawal, it is necessary for the sake of maintaining a certain quality or even so quantity of functioning that you stay on it. Chronic pain, incapacitating pain could be both quality and quantity of functioning considerations. A doctor may, a medical doctor, a physician may decide, determine the benefits of use of that particular substance, it's not illicit because it's prescribed, recommended, would otherwise outweigh the liabilities or the risks. And if that's the case, then continue to prescribe it. Now again, with substance use disorders, substance-related and addictive disorders in general, Making an appropriate diagnosis, we would take into consideration the possibility that a person has established a pattern of addiction to this particular substance as evidenced by misuse and or dependence. But having met the full criteria of such previously, do not meet it presently. And that would be for at least three months, but less than 12 months or a year. Once again, universal across all the different categories, this common dimension, we'd call that early remission. It's important to note that because there is also with that the idea that the longer you're in remission, the lesser the risk of relapse overall. So that can be very important information. Treatment-wise, or if it should come up that for whatever reason, not necessarily with cocaine or methamphetamines, but we'll go back to the opiate, opioid, you may actually need a pain medicine at some point in the future. But even with stimulants, amphetamines, they can be prescribed, but you may not want to prescribe them to an addict. Or if you're going to, it needs to be 
taken into full consideration of the addiction, that is, needs to be taken into full consideration and then done so with a thorough risk analysis for it to, once again, cause more harm than it would benefit if used, prescribed. Sustained remission would be after criterion for stimulant use disorder has been met previously. None currently exists, but it's over 12 months or longer. Again, prognosis would be better. What's the course likely to look like or appear to be in terms of maintaining sobriety, maintaining one's recovery, not relapsing or lapsing? Also, we're asked to specify if it took a controlled environment to achieve either early or sustained remission. That's important. Independently living, as we've mentioned with opiates, would be an ideal, even for someone in recovery. It's, again, a highest level, prior level of functioning, or an even higher level of adaptive functioning. But if you've been able to overcome stimulant use or misuse, experience remission early or sustained, but only because you were in a controlled environment, there's much then risk that would have to be considered associated with independent living. And though you may, the addict, may be quite capable of independent living, finding out or discovering whether or not that is possible has implicitly a risk attached because from the controlled environment to the independent living, there is a transition. And as we've discussed with treatment options, according to the American Society of Addiction Medicine, sometimes it takes very controlled environment, a very controlled environment to achieve sobriety, but that correlates to a higher degree of addiction, but coming out of that circumstance then necessitates a more gradual or progressive transition from the more restrictive, higher intensity level of care to a less restrictive level of care that would be commensurate with independent living. You're not in a hospital. You're not in a partial program. You're now going to outpatient treatment. You're receiving aftercare. You're attending support groups. A person who needed the level of structure as with a controlled environment is probably going to run great risk if thrown into an independent circumstance or situation where their environment is not controlled 
So the strategy would be to transition them. Another way of saying that would be step down. Gradual, progressive movement toward independence. Now again, when it comes to stimulant use disorders, you're going to have also the opportunity to specify whether if still active, not in remission, but active, whether it is mild, two or three symptoms present, moderate in severity, four to five symptoms present, or severe, as in six or more symptoms. That speaks, again, a lot to level of care, as in treatment strategy, as in formulating a successful treatment plan with the end of sobriety in mind. So the takeaway from today's podcast is, (laughs) one, outside of opiates, opioids, heroin, there's a lot of individuals who are abusing cocaine and other stimulants, amphetamine-type, prescribed, manufactured, lab-produced, manufactured, legally so, clinical, as well as methamphetamine, which can be concocted or cooked up in a lab, but it's not legal. And because the recent studies indicate there is that degree of prevalence and measure it as such a problem, we decided to take a look at it on the program, podcast. It also gives us a context in which to look at or at least allows us to backfill this concept of the homeostatic response and the fact that humans by nature are inclined to risk addictions. With this red flag warning, don't do it if you can prevent yourself from doing it. Once you do it, you've already taken the first step Not that everything will become an addiction, physiologically dependent. Although of all the illicit substances, the first use is a misuse because you're not supposed to use it. That's why they're controlled substances. And if they are used, that's why medical doctors and physicians have to prescribe them. But in case you would need some recognition as well of what the criterion are for a diagnosis of stimulant use disorder. We went over those. But for those of you who have been through all of the podcasts thus far, when it comes to substance-related disorders, as we looked at opioids to this point, you're going to recognize, become aware 
of the familiarity that all the criterion are pretty much the same. But that, again, seems to, and at least for me, anecdotally, justify the consideration that we all have this addictive potential. Maybe we're not all addictive personalities. That's probably, in its own way, a progressive sort of refinement of all the bad things that go along with an addiction. But we need to recognize it's got to be closely tied to the human nature or there wouldn't be such a prominent effect. We would not even be having a discussion about, well, is there addictive personality? We would not even have to give similar consideration to, well, if it's the physical sort of nature of humans to be addictive, how can you call that pathological? Which means you really can't because it is normal, adaptively so, there's a purpose and benefit, or we would not be where we are in terms of everything else around us as we would measure then our prominence when it comes to the different, the hierarchy of life on earth, so to speak. But nonetheless, you don't know what the number, your number is when it comes to what's going to punch your ticket. You don't know what you're going to become addicted to. But at least beginning with that premise that we're creatures of habit or on a physiological level, there's a potential for, because of all the biochemistry, the homeostatic, hedonic system, homeostatic response, all of us run a significant risk of addiction. But it may also be speak to the fact that that's why, in a preventative sort of way, if we're going to be addicts, we need to be health addicts. We need to identify the healthiest alternatives, or as that would fit into adaptability, our place in terms of the food chain, the natural selection process, why we are superior. And rather than in our mind believe we could alter what is the basic template, maybe we should be more inclined, though it is something defined for us, nature defined it. If you go changing that, you're going to run the risk of maladaptive reactions and responses. And with that even, the possibility that if you change it too radically, we may not be able to adjust to it. And if we can adjust to it, what is it going to look like in relationship to everything else that's naturally going on in our psychosocial and natural environment? Again, it is an incredible, a miraculous sort of balancing act of the ecosystem and the individual participants. And it's taken many, many, many years, if not generations of humans, if not life itself, evolution, to get us here. 
how could you expect what's taken that long to achieve this level of intricacy in terms of balance that you could do something to so profoundly change that balance and not expect an adverse consequence? If not ultimately compromise our ability to make those adjustments in concert with all of these factors to the point where it risks our life. And we all know, we've stated, I know, those of you who have listened to the podcast before, you know, adaptability is measured life. And it's first quantity, but also as close to that being first, it's quality. And addicts risk both. And not only are they taking themselves into those high-risk sort of categories of actual life or the quality of life, but they're dragging, pulling, because we are so interconnected, not only with our natural, but again, our psychosocial environment, the rest of us with them. And the cost of that in terms of the overall human species, family, culture, society, nations, civilization, humankind, human evolution, all of that can be so compromised at a very base level especially when prevalence becomes as high as to make it on the list. 85% relapse who give up or try to quit. What this recent study has suggested are the most addictive substances in the United States. They relapse within the first year. 30% begin this movement toward addiction before age 18. And if it is before age 18, they're seven times more likely to have an addiction than if it starts later in life. It's all tied together. How we conduct our life, how we choose to live our life, by what standards of wellness and health speaks as much to whether or not we do or don't do, use or don't use, discriminately or even so indiscriminately, an illicit substance to get a particular, especially when it becomes conditioned, conscious, subconscious awareness, to get a particular effect. There's better ways. It's called being healthy. So much for primary, secondary, and tertiary care. Prevent it is always better than treating it. Prevention is always better than secondary or tertiary. After an occurrence, after prolonged occurrences, progression of disease and disorder interventions. So... If you need additional information, if you just want to comment on what we've discussed in today's podcast, 
if you want to ask for my opinion in, in trying to assist you in finding the care and the treatment you need. If you want to come see me, speak with me, I always post the email address. You're certainly welcome to email. But should you not do that and reach out to me to communicate in any manner or fashion about any of those concerns or additional ones, I would also hope that you could join us for our next podcast. You are listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Thanks for joining us today.